Bishop Bob Ladehoff shared a story with me at the door at 8 o'clock this morning. Um, and it's a better introduction to what I have to say than what I thought I had to say. So I'm going to share that story with you. Um, it was, he said, uh, it happened in his uh, early congregation that he served. I don't, know, I don't know at what point in Bob's career, but he was, he was serving in a, in a congregation, I think in North Carolina. And there was a gentleman in that congregation who had fought in the Second World War, had fought in the Philippines, had been captured by the Japanese army, um, had been, you know, marched through the Philippines, uh, tortured, had endured, you know, prisoner of war camps, the whole thing, lived to, to, to tell the tale. And when he, would, when he was asked, how did, you, how did you survive? How did you survive the torture and all of everything that happened to you? He said, when I was a kid in parochial school, I had to memorize the Psalms. And the Psalms are what got me through. The Psalms are the thing. They became my through line. The Psalms are what got me through. So if you're a Psalms newbie, if this uh, particular way of praying is new to you, you could do a lot worse than starting with the psalm that we chanted here just this morning, Psalm 27. It's, um, it's a really good gateway psalm, I think. A colleague of mine calls Psalm 27 his life psalm. These are the verses, kind of to, to Bob Ladhoff's point, the verses that got him through rounds of chemo when he was a teenager and he was diagnosed with cancer. Words that have stuck with him over 40 years and more. This is the psalm, he says, that he has inscribed on his, on his heart. And it famously begins with these beautiful lines, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? Which I think is another way of saying, I am afraid of a lot. There is a lot in this world that is scary. There's a lot in this world that deserves to be treated with, with respect and with fear. We didn't get the whole psalm this morning, we just got excerpts, but when you take a look at the whole text, it sounds to me like it could have been written for this historical moment. This is a speaker who knows the reality that many people in our world are facing right now. This is a speaker that knows the reality of the people of Kiev who are waking every morning with the fear that this will be the day that their city is fully encircled by an invading army. The psalmist writes, even if an army should encamp against me, even though a war should be fought against me, even still will I put my trust in God. That's, that's breathtaking confidence when you think about it, right? That, that kind of uh, desperation and trust in the God who protects. This is a speaker who has an entirely honest and realistic depiction of the world, right? Which is that war is a thing. I think this is a psalmist who has known the reality of war. I think she's speaking from personal experience. She knows war is a thing that happens, and when it happens to you, it is horrible. There is heartbreak and misery. The psalmist knows that. And yet, in the midst of that terrifying violence, she turns to beauty. It's, it's a remarkable psalm, actually. The truth, the trust, the turn that this speaker makes from an honest and unstinting view of the tanks that are parked right outside her gates to this interior vista that she finds when she goes deep into prayer. One thing have I asked of the Lord, she says, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the fair beauty of the Lord and to seek God in the temple. I gotta ask, where does that trust, where does that come from? It's a psalm of comfort. I think that's why so many people are drawn to Psalm 27. And I think part of what it teaches us is that comfort begins when we can be honest about the stuff that scares us, when we can name our fears. 
Uh, a woman came up to me last week at the, at the door at the end of the service. She said, is it, is it okay for me to pray for the death of President Putin? And her question kind of caught me off guard in the moment. I know this woman pretty well. We've talked about some things. So I, I, mean, I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. Um, is, it, is it ever okay to pray for somebody's death? I had to kind of think about that one. Um, and I've been thinking about it a lot this week, actually. I expect that's a question that lots of us are wrestling with. What is an appropriate way to pray for a situation like the one that we're watching unfold in the Ukraine? What I said to her, what I believe, is that if the Psalms are meant to model for us a particular way of praying, and I actually think that's what they were intended to do, if I think of the Psalms as a school of prayer, then what I learn is that God is first and foremost interested in my honesty, not in my pretense. There are pious words for sure in the Psalms, and there's also, as many of you know, a lot of really nasty stuff in the Psalms, right? There's imprecatory Psalms that call down blessings and curses. The Psalms are the places where we get, you know, this happy are they who, you know, dash the heads of the little ones against the rocks. I mean, there's a, there's a, not everybody loves the Psalms, and there's good reason for that. Anger is in there, fear and terror and heartbreak and lament, and through it all, this overwhelming, unutterable joy. If the Psalms teach me anything, it's that prayer, the kind of prayer that can actually make a difference in how I live my life, that real kind of prayer starts not by finding the most beautiful and holy words I can think of to say to God. Prayer starts in the nitty-gritty, right, in the viscera, the actual day-to-day -day reality of my heart and soul. As the Orthodox Archbishop Anthony Bloom famously said, prayer begins when I stop trying to pray, right? The day when God is absent, he says, the day when God is silent, that's the beginning of prayer. Not when I've got a lot to say, but when I say to God, why are you so cruel? Why are you so silent? Anthony Bloom says, prayer begins in the knowledge that I must find or die. Prayer begins with desperation. And what we learn, at least what I've learned, is that prayer does not change God. Prayer doesn't change God, prayer changes me. I don't know if C.S. Lewis actually said that, or if the character C.S. Lewis says that in the movie Shadowlands. I think that's a playwright's line. Doesn't matter to me, I love that line. Prayer doesn't change God, prayer changes me. Who knows what God is up to, right? If this tradition has anything to say about God's action in the world, it's that line that Paul gives us in, in Romans. How unsearchable are God's judgments, how inscrutable are God's ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. Isaiah says that, a reminder that Prayer is never about changing God's mind. There's no magic here, right? There's no enchanted words that will unlock the divine treasure chest and dole out blessings and curses on the people that I think deserve them. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes me. And if I'm open to change, if I'm open to learning something new about God and the world, I have to start with an honest and pretty unstinting examination of the person I actually am, what I actually think and feel and want and fear. That's where I think the Psalms ask, act almost as a kind of a, a prayer coach, if you like, an invitation into a deeper wrestling, a deeper reckoning with myself. Walter Brueggemann says, you have to have a place to process your fears or they will annihilate you. You have to have a place to process your fears or they will annihilate you. I think that's why we gather in spaces like this cathedral. It's, it's one thing to pray the Psalms away in my room, and they work that way, right? There's an intimacy, there's a, a personal contact intensity to these highly personal prayers of longing and fear. But inevitably, the voice of an individual, that first person voice, right? God is my light, God is my light and my salvation. Invariably, that first person voice 
turns then to the presence of a larger community. The psalmist in, in Psalm 27 says, even now, God lifts up my head above my enemies who gather round about me. Therefore, she says, I will offer in God's dwelling an oblation of sounds of great gladness. She says, I will sing and make music to the Lord. She's talking about the temple, right? She's going to worship. I think Brueggemann's right. You have to have a place. You have to have a place to process your fears or they will annihilate you. And you can't process your fears when you're on the run, when you're in the thick of battle, when you're in survival mode. I begin to process my fears when I take time and space to catch my breath for a minute, when there's a moment of stillness, a moment of silence, a moment to shut up and stop. That's what the psalmist finds. In the day of trouble, she says, God keeps me safe in his shelter. God hides me under the secrecy of God's dwelling. God sets me high on a rock. That's the idea, I think, that Jesus is riffing on in the Gospels. When he speaks of the city of Jerusalem, right, the city that kills the prophets, and says, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. It's a beautiful image of what God longs for. Feminist scholars have been pointing out for generations, right, the Bible has just as many images of God as a mother as the Bible does images of God as a father, right? That's true in the Psalms, that's true for Jesus. That gathering function of God, the sheltering function, God like a mother hen, right? God in whom I find my hiding place. That's an image of God that our ancient texts often gender in the feminine. And for the psalmist, that gathering, finding God in the shelter, in the silence, in the hiding, that place is where God's beauty is, actually. This is actually kind of an amazing idea. For, for, for in, in our tradition, for Christians, for Jews, who, people who pray these psalms, beauty is not actually about aesthetics. Beauty isn't about, like, I like those stained glass better than these stained glass. Beauty is how God protects us. I mean, think about that. What are you doing here today? Somehow we know this. Beauty is about safety. One thing have I asked of the Lord, the psalmist says, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of God all the days of my life to behold the fair beauty. That's just, it's one word in Hebrew. It's a particular kind of beauty, not just pretty stuff, right? Not just aesthetically pleasing stuff. To behold the deep beauty, we might say, the sacred beauty, to behold the beauty of God and to seek God in that, in that beauty, in that temple. It's more than soaring music. It's more than stained glass and stone. It's more than vaulted ceilings and rich fabrics and the smell of smoke and candles. Since ancient days, our ancestors have known, right, particular places are holy. And they dedicate those places as shrines and temples and meeting houses and mosques and synagogues and cathedrals. These are the places, we say, where beauty can be found. Beauty is not the same thing as God. But I think if Jesus is right, beauty is like the wings of God, right? The wings that surround a brood like a mother hen surrounds her beauty. That's, that's beauty. That's what God is doing when we have these moments of beauty. God's gathering us and sheltering us, hiding us away and keeping us safe. Beauty is, I think, the place we come to, the safe place we, we long for to process our fears lest they annihilate us. Beauty is where we come to seek safety. And then, I think beauty is then, as a mother hen does, right, lifts her wings, sends her chicks out into the barnyard. Beauty is the thing that propels us out into the world. Beauty is like the best thing we've got going for us. So this particular psalmist, who was writing several thousand years ago, 
is taking us actually on an amazing journey of learning how to trust that beautiful God. It's a journey of prayer, which is to say, I think it's an interior journey that, that many of us know a little bit more about than we, than we think we do. I think this is actually territory that we know, even those of us who don't think that we're very good at praying. Because this is a way of praying that actually begins when I stop trying to pray and instead start talking very honestly with God about what's really going on for me. It begins with a raw kind of honesty, praying for the death of Putin, if you like. And it gradually begins to work on me in a different kind of way. I learn that prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes me. And so I find in that kind of prayer this place of refuge and safety and then beauty. That's how I begin to, to detach myself ever so gently from the things that keep me up at night. They gradually lose their ability to, to scare me quite so much. And the beauty that that creates in me, that deep beauty, it creates this kind of like interior little cathedral, if you like, a place where I can go, where when I have nowhere else to turn, I discover that even more than my fears, even more than my anxieties, even more than my anger and my frustration, my heartbreak, there is underneath everything this kind of deep longing. There's a tug there, there's a pull there that tugs at my heart when I sift underneath all the stuff that's happening on the surface of my life to behold the fair beauty of the Lord. That's the ancient way of expressing that deep kind of longing. You have made us for yourself, O God, St. Augustine famously prayed. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I think that's what we want deep down. It's rest. In Hebrew, it's shalom, right? It's, it's not just peace. It's like well-being. It's the peace that passes understanding, not the absence of conflict, but the ability to find beauty in the midst of horrific circumstances, a peace that finds you on the battlefield, on the death march, if you like, in the middle of strife and conflict, a peace that makes no sense, a wholeness that catches you up in the moment you least expect it. That's God's temple. That's God's beauty, the fair beauty of the Lord that catches me up and does not let me go. One thing have I asked of the Lord, the psalmist says. One thing I seek underneath all of my prayers this is the thing I really want, to behold that beauty, the fair beauty, the deep beauty of the world by looking for God in all of the temples of this world, all the sacred shrines and all the war-torn places, the, the streets, the hospital wards, the bombed-out districts, the battlefields, to find God's presence in the beauty and in the violence of a world that is full of pain. I mean, maybe that's all that prayer is. Figuring out how to search for God, look for God, to find something holy in the midst of deep pain and suffering. We sang it at the beginning of the service, right? I want to see the brightness of God. I want to look at Jesus. That hymn goes on to say, when we have run with patience the race, we shall know the joy of the Father. And I think if we're gonna follow Jesus' images here, right? I, we shall know the joy of the mother, the one who gathers her chicks under her wings with great beauty and shelters them from the storm. You speak in my heart, the psalmist says, you speak in my heart and you say, seek my face, seek my beauty. Your face, Lord, is what we will seek. <laughs>